Bezos. <sighs> what about Mr. Bezos? Well, we just didn't that take so much time for us to figure out how to record our Patreon episode mm, next. It did. It did. Uh, I don't know why they make it that complicated to read your books on a desktop. It's uh, not very nice of them. Or their quote-unquote Kindle app, where it certainly doesn't work, and even when you (laughs) delete it off your computer, uh, it still thinks it's running. It could be because this is Windows 7, perhaps, so maybe... Bill Gates and Bezos are to blame for this, but uh, the team I, up. I wanted to tell you about my my little quest. We'll call it a quest. Last Cody's night. quest. <laughs> okay, so both with a K. I I last night I was like working on continuing to put away shit in the house. Now my grandma before she passed, uh, get, gave me her like uh Bausch like fucking bread maker machine. And it has like a million pieces to it, right? So I'm cleaning it all off, and there was a circular blade that had adhesive on it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize mm. there's a ginormous sharp blade, blade. sticking out of it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm scrubbing it. Oh, you fucking asshole. Yeah. I'm already going to throw up. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Keep going. So on my thumb, super deep cut on there. <sighs> it's like bleeding everywhere. And I'm like washing it under the sink. And I'm like holding the napkin over to try to get it to stop. And then I realized I don't have any band-aids at home. <laughs> so I get in the car with this like thing over my finger. <laughs> Bloody stump. Yep. And I drive over to CVS to get some band-aids. The lady's like watching me try to get my wallet out of my pocket <laughs> with my bad hand. Or like with my left hand. And then put it into the card reader with my left hand. Yeah. Probably thought I was like simple or something. Yeah. But it's just like... Uh, holy shit but man you just gotta wrap a couple paper towels around it put some duct tape on there you're good to Mm. go i don't even think i have duct tape right now that was the problem i was considering super glue because i did have some of that but uh that usually burns quite a bit yeah that sucks yeah yeah but i took it off this morning and i got the ones with like medication on it Uh and it got stuck on it and it pulled great (laughs) ripped it open and got it bleeding everywhere so yeah, I have a nice big cut on my thumb. Oh, but uh, and those never heal because your fingers are bending and moving all the yeah. gosh damn time. Uh-huh. Well, I put together these lovely desks this morning, and I had to use my thumb. Yeah, so it's bleeding again. But uh, I it, think now are these desks now soaked in your blood? Well, they, they will literally become more powerful than ever they, before. They literally are made from my blood, sweat, and tears. Good. So. You were crying too. I wasn't crying, but uh, it's just how the phrase goes. Okay. You got to include the tears, yeah. otherwise it doesn't really matter. Well, maybe the sweat got in your eye and uh, made the tear reaction. Here, here's the thing. When people say that statement, probably most of the time it's either blood or sweat. It's mostly sweat. Yeah. 99% no... of the time it's sweat. Yeah. The yeah. other ones... And tears because they're babies. What? <laughs> what if you make a cake? Why are you crying about a cake? Yeah, and I don't want any fluids in my cake, (laughs) any bodily fluids in my cake. (laughs) There probably is plenty of them, you just don't notice. Yeah, certainly. And little (laughs) dust mites and stuff. Mm. It's no good. None of it's no good. None of it's any good at all. Mm. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bumblebutt Podcast, the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly. Who knows what it'll be about this week? It's me. My name is Adam. Sitting across from me, as ever, is Cody. Hello, Adam. How are you? How was your week? 
I just started burping, so thank you for covering there. Uh, I was going to say the same thing to you, um, but my week was great. PS3, up and running. PS3 emulation, up and running. Uh, uh, all the best games. Gran Turismo 6, okay, for Whoa. PS3, all DLC. Fight Night Champions still, because that game's fucking great. That's uh, That's all I've been up to, Cody. Okay, if Fight Night at that point has to have Mayweather in it, Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I my week was just a lot of working, to be honest with you. Sure. A lot of working, a lot of doing stuff at home. Sure. Playing games when I can. Working and working at home as far as uh, unpacking. Here's my life. Working, working at home, yeah. and then podcasting. Home ownership, Cody. Yeah. <laughs> it was a mistake. <laughs> it was it? It was a mistake. No, it was no. not. No. We is... just got to get settled in. I wish we had a big panoramic of all of all the stuff. We, we're we going to get there. I uh, We got to get the cork board yeah. and all of that. I, I saw a really neat cork board. Uh, I'll tell you what. We're, it's looking good. We got some of the art hanging up. The, hell yeah. The non-cork boardable stuff. <laughs> I want to get a frame for that. Uh, can you hear the people sing that Bianca got me to? Oh, yes, we yes. We, we have that somewhere. We can like, hang that up there It's such above a, the window. It's such a weird shape. Yeah. It's uh, So you need like a special frame. But yeah. I do have good news. I was accepted to transfer over to Woodbury here, so I will be less than a mile from, from work here. Good so, for you, yeah. buddy. Leave Golden Valley behind. Mm, Plymouth. Plymouth, Plymouth, you know, 394, it's whatever. It's going to save me two hours a day. It's yes, going it to be is. fantastic. So. Wow, congratulations, yeah, buddy. Yeah. I'm You're going to have actual time to yourself now. I'm moving up in life here. I'd say. Uh, you know what? You know how great it is to like live less than a mile from where you were? You remember I did it for yeah. years. Oh, yeah. And still you had to pick me up, sometimes <laughs> because I was drunk and sometimes because the ice was too severe mm, for me. Mm-hmm. That is scary. Yeah. All right, let's get right into this episode, shall we? Let's do it. One more thing. Mm. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Moose God. Thank you, Goose God. Thank you, Papoose God. (laughs) Kelly, you're a you're a monster. She 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 has she ascended. She's now God. Well, she's always been Moose God, Kelly. Mm. But I just as I was saying Moose God, I was like Goose rhymes perfectly. What do you? Here's a real question. If I wanted to make an offering. To, to the moose god, god. What, moose god, who do I have to sacrifice, like, burn in, like, the metal statue below the moose god statue? Oh, well, he doesn't accept burnt offerings. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's not uh, He's not a violent god the way that yours is, okay? <laughs> what do French people hate? That's what we need to burn in there. What do French people hate? Yeah. Probably, like... Uh, deodorant. <laughs> I was going to say maybe, like, the canned croissants. Oh, like, like Pillsbury you, yeah, you have instant to just, croissant. There's just like a big burn pile of uh, Pillsbury oh. croissant cans. In well, there. Moose God, Goose God, <laughs> Kelly, once again with the research, very, <laughs> very clutch and very good and very mm. deep and very thorough. Somebody should give this kid a job. I told her we'd pay her as soon as we could. Mm. Absolutely. On Friday, September 9th, 1949 at 1025 a.m., Flight 108. An eastbound Canadian Pacific Air DC-3 left Quebec and headed along its bus route that pretty much followed the St. Lawrence River. Its ultimate destination was Seven Islands, a fishing village about 300 miles from Quebec. There were 19 paying customers on board, as well as a four-person crew. 19 people. Can you imagine? No. That flight. I've never even... I'd... 
didn't even know that was a thing. Planes were much smaller. These were propeller planes, obviously. Mm. And uh, you used to be allowed to have, like, some room when mm. you were a passenger on an airplane. Mm. You weren't treated like a piece of cattle. Were. Now, what is the percentage? So you have 23 people. 23 people. Out of those 23 people, how many of them were smoking? All. <laughs> 24. Okay, 20. There was a stowaway from the last flight that was smoking underneath. (laughs) 20 minutes into the flight, a captain aboard a steamship on the St. Lawrence looked up when he heard a loud pop overhead. He saw a plane with a puff of white smoke coming out of the side before it veered to the left and nosedived onto the heavily wooded hillside called Cap Torment. Cap Torment. Yes. Wow. Okay, I love that. Speaking to a reporter from the Montreal Gazette, CN Railway section man Oscar Tremblay said about the wreckage. It was the most awful scene I'd ever came across. They all died outright. There were arms and legs and even heads torn from the bodies. There were mangled bodies of little children. The front of the plane seemed to be in one piece, and it was jammed with broken and twisted bodies as if it had been thrown forward in the crash. So they were all crammed near the cockpit from the impact. They were all thrown, broken from their restraints and thrown... Who is the, the pilot, the Harrison Smith? <laughs> Harrison no, Smith? No, Harrison Ford. <laughs> Defe- I don't know who Harrison's. Yeah, oh, you do. Yes, he's the safety. <laughs> he's the goat roper. Uh, I don't know if that man drives a plane or not. I know Harrison Ford crashes his plane. On the golf courses. Yeah, quite frequently. That are so. covered in doctors, so he's like fucking, he was golden. Did you hear about that? Oh, when he crashed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like I- a team of doctors that were playing <laughs> golf on that hole. <laughs> For someone who was not only Han Solo, but also was in uh, Seven Days and Six Nights or yeah. whatever that movie was, yeah. where he was a drunk pilot. Yes. You think he would have learned a thing or two. Seriously. Mm. But what made this crash international news was the death of three American industrials. E. Tapon Standard, Arthur D. Stork, and Russell J. Parker, who were president, president-elect, and vice president of the Kennecott Copper Company. Whoa, okay. They So they were important. Very much mm. bigwigs. I've actually heard of the Kennecott. I've heard of Kennecott Mines for sure, but uh, I swear I've bought like a pan that was made out of Kennecott Copper. So <laughs> they're good, still though. around. It's kind of weird his last name's Standard. Yeah, like, yeah. What is that? E. Tapon Standard. Mm, that's a I, weird name. I kind of like that. It's, yeah. it's fun. Gabriel Standard. That's a person. Maybe it's like uh, Spanish. Could it be. might be Spanish. Could be. Also among the dead was a Mrs. J. Albert Guay, a 29-year-old housewife whose jewelry salesman husband had sent her on that flight to bring back three suitcases full of rings, watches, and other valuables that he had in storage. Okay, so he's a, like, door-to-door jewelry salesman? Yep, traveling okay. on-commission jewelry salesman, okay. yes. It's kind of like jewelry, but Mary, or Mary Kay Mary for Kay jewelry. Mary Kay Avon jewelry. Mm. Reporters were really tearing into this thing from the get-go. Everybody rightfully wanted to know the cause, and the only true answers died with everyone on the plane, or so they thought. Actually, the one with all the answers was somewhere in Quebec, gazing out at Cape Torment intensely. Okay. He was J. Albert Guay, the 31-year-old husband of the housewife on the plane. 
Although fond of his wife, he had absolutely no issue shoving her into a cab for the airport, kissing her goodbye, and dooming her and 22 others because she was complicating his affair with a teenage waitress. Okay, alright, so we already know her husband, Mr. Albert, here is up to something. Mm -hmm. He's a little... You know, I've never really trusted jewelry salesmen, right. but now this is kind of reaffirming that. Like jewelers, the people that make it, I barely trust them. And jewelry salesmen, that's a huge step down. There's no trust there. <laughs> you know what they need? Like a door-to-door -door homies salesman. You remember those little oh, things? 25 you... cent homies. Uh -huh. I think I had most of them. There was <laughs> one you? that was really rare, though. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the rarest homie? It might have been the clown one. It might have been the clown. <laughs> Like most habituants of Quebec, Guay was born French-Canadian and Roman Catholic on September 22, 1917 in Charney, which is right on the other side of the St. Lawrence from Quebec City. He was the youngest of five children, and his father, a brakeman for the Canadian National Railway, died in a train accident when, when Guay was only four. Okay, I... This might be insensitive, but if you're the brake man, aren't you controlling the accident? Sounds like it's your fault. Yeah, yeah. so someone was slacking a little bit. Yeah. You had one job, brake, yeah. and you didn't brake. Break, so. Have you heard the train, like they're doing all the advertising on podcasts now? Yeah. The NTSC or whatever? Is, is that like the biggest problem we're facing? Like dipshits driving in front of a fucking train? When you see the light coming, but you can't see the train. That doesn't mean it's not coming. Well, you know the commercial's not real because that lady would have been like, hold on, I'm uploading it to YouTube. <laughs> then I'll call 911. I mean, this guy's a fucking pancake right now. It doesn't really matter what happened to him. This next excerpt comes from an article written by Roger Lemelin, a Quebecois journalist and novelist who lived across the street from Guay and his wife for eight years and had acquaintances that went all the way back to Guay's childhood. As a child, Guay was spoiled by his mother, who favored him over his other siblings, and who would often come to his defense, even in situations that may not have warranted it. Lemelin wrote, Evan helped the teacher who dare scold him. Madame Guay would rush to the school and hurl abuse at the unfortunate instructor. Oh, so she's one of those. She's a hands-on... He also wrote, Candies and toys seem to have been invented especially for Albert. He was raised with the idea that nothing could be refused to him. Even as a young child, he would quite willingly have murdered. There Ooh, you go. Okay, so he is, a, he is a he, psychopath at birth. He's a little, mm. he's a little nut bar spoiled baby mm. that gets absolutely everything he wants. Can I make a confession? This does sound like Josh a little bit, but... Obviously, he has not killed anybody that we know no, of. I'm just pretty certain every animal. Mm, yeah, yeah. If you're an animal, you're done. But yeah. I don't think he would do this to a plane. Also, I think he's afraid of planes, so ah, uh, uh, he'll, he'll be okay there. I don't. He may, he seems like the kind of man that may have not traveled by plane mm, before. I think he's scared of it. I could see it. He's yep. scared of it. Yep. Listen to this cool fact, Cody. Nearly all French Canadians are given two Christian names at birth either Marie or Joseph, as the case may need. <laughs> to avoid Joseph's and Marie's being the only names anyone had, most dropped these and went by their middle name. Although friends and family called him Albert, when he grew up, he insisted on being called J. Albert to make himself sound more formidable and respectable. Guay was short, 
underweight, and nervous. He had handsome features and nice, bouncy, curly black hair with an engaging smile to boot. Ooh, okay. Um, I feel a little ripped off because yeah. I didn't get that many names. I got, you know, obviously first, middle, last. Right. You didn't get a, like a Chris, uh, a Joseph. You're not no, Joseph Cody. No. Uh, Marie's big though in my family. Yeah. The other thing is, is that you get like a saint's name as a Catholic. Oh, here, so. when you get yeah. Uh, communioned. Yeah, I can't. Or confirmed. I think I was just Saint Peter, maybe after Lame. my grandpa. Yeah, not very fun. He didn't do anything cool. Guay was always in the latest fashion trends and had dreams of becoming a singer and orchestra leader. <laughs> According to acquaintances, he was never able to write a song and his voice was pretty shitty. But this hipster would be all over town whistling the latest hits, thinking maybe he'd get picked up by a talent agent from his knowledge of music. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's... Sounds like something Jordan should have been doing. Yes, just you. whistling the top uh, 40s all over the place. He's whistling hardcore metal um, and just hoping a producer picks him up. But, but in reality, they probably just think he's just a crazy guy. Yeah, a, a, a nerd. <laughs> By all accounts, Gway went out of his way to develop an overly good and cheery public persona. Whenever he had money on him, he'd hand it over in a heartbeat if you asked for it. He had great manners, and all the old ladies absolutely were smitten with the charming but short lad. At the time he was planning the murder of his wife, he took a stroll with his priest to discuss the moral decay in society. <sighs> he was all about being a, 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 okay. a perfect Catholic in public. Okay, yeah. all right. I mean, at least he did that. I mean, any good Catholic before they're about to kill their wife would, con you know, con confer with the priest yeah. i mean talk about how gotta... society's in the shit you know <laughs> there's just bad people everywhere divorce is through the roof i don't know if a catholic priest necessarily gives too many fucks about that to be honest with you <laughs> I, I really don't think they care as long as they got altar boys that's all they want sure hmm. he never once considered people's tendency to gossip because he kept his teenage mistress in an apartment just a few blocks from his home that he shared with his wife and four-year-old daughter. And once he decided murder was the correct way to go, he would go around talking about it to anyone that would listen. He had the gull of a canal horse, said one detective Ooh. who was assigned to investigate Flight 108's explosion. What the fuck is a canal horse? And why is a horse in a canal? Uh, I assume they're gutter horses. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was going to say, like, when I think of a canal, I think of, like, water. And I don't think Absolutely. a horse can swim. Uh, well, you know, like, uh, Peaky Blinders, mm. they kind of operate on the canal. And I think they have some kind of uh, gutter horses that are sort of <laughs> used to loud noises and bad stuff. Gotcha. A uh, funny tidbit from the same detective here. Ten days after the plane crash, a Great Lakes steamer caught fire at its pier in Toronto, resulting in the death of 132 passengers. Guay had talked about his plan so often that several Quebec residents went around saying that Guay probably hired someone to torch the steamer to get rid of a pet dog. Uh, this guy kind of sounds like the the Quebec Joker. To be honest with you, uh, he's just a, he's just an idiot and oh hates direct God. action. You know, he needs other people to do the stuff gotcha. for him. <laughs> After the untimely death of his father, Guay's mom packed up the five kids and moved to Limalu, which is a suburb of Quebec. Guay didn't have much in the way of a formal education, but he had a quick mouth and was incredibly sure of himself. By 16, he was a known figure at pool halls, 
where he would play for money as well as sell discount jewelry to other pool hall hangarounds on commission. Okay, you know, we've heard a lot about pool halls. You got to be careful in there. That's uh, the moral decay right there. Mm. Talk about moral decay. It's goddamn pool halls. You know what? Where you're living now, I don't think you live that far from Billard's. Uh, Is that what it was called in Burnsville? Yeah. A lot of degenerates in there. Oh, yeah. Lots of degenerates. Early in 1941, at the tender age of 23, he got himself a job at the St. Malo Armory in Quebec. This didn't require any special skill. He was working as a laborer at a grinding machine, which got him deferred from military service. Of course, 1941 was uh, mm. a big year for the war. I, right? You know what I'm noticing? Um, he, you know, him and his father are both uh, obsessed with metal grinding together. Like, wow. See? Yeah. You see Sometimes you just... It's in the blood. You just know what you're meant to be. You're wow. going to be... Break man. Be responsible for metal grinding together. I like it. You just got to accept your fate. He boosted his wages by selling jewelry to his co-workers mm. and soon enough was able to afford a car. He became the envy of his male co-workers and he was thirsted over by his female ones. <laughs> he sounds like a he sounds like a sex fiend here. Oh yeah. Like he sounds like the Johnny Depp of this factory. He's he's hot, he's transcendence Johnny Depp. <laughs> He set his sights on the beautiful, busty brunette Rita Morell with large brown eyes and a great set of teeth. By August 1941, the two were married and living in a nice but tiny apartment in the Lower Town section of Quebec. At the time, Lower Town was considered to be as close to a slum as you'd find in Quebec. Mm, I, when you said Rita Morell, I was envisioning if like Toad had a sister. Like, like a Morell mushroom. Toad? Oh, See? yeah. Well, there is Girl Toads. Is uh, yeah. What do you know their names? <laughs> girl Toad. <laughs> girl Toad. Toadette. <laughs> it's Toadette. It's Toadette. Toadette. Yeah. Okay. She's in Mario Tennis on mm. Switch. Where do they carry the baby in the top? I don't know Put what's going cap. on. See, I don't know if that's a hat or they have a giant brain underneath <laughs> there or what. It's pretty gross. Also working at the factory was another woman whom Gwei grew very close mm. to and who would, in fact, be charged with the very same murders. Marguerite Ruist. Born in 1908 in southeastern Quebec, her father was a cook in a lumber camp. As such, the Russ had a bit of a rough and tumble upbringing that Marguerite would carry through her life. Mm. In contrast to the buxom Rita, Marguerite was homely, with a dark complexion, wiry brown hair, broad face, and a wide body with a short fuse and a cutting tongue. Much like Gwei, she was always willing to do someone a favor if they asked. At 22, she spent two months in jail for selling bootleg booze, and throughout her life, according to provincial records, she gave birth at least 14 times to various different fathers. Whoa! However many she popped out, however, she only raised two of them, both sons. Wow, holy shit. This is like the female version of... Fucking, uh, what's his name? Uh, Any professional athlete? <laughs> Who, who's Will the boxer? The oh. boxer. Uh, what can I think of his name? The headbutter. The headbutter. Oh, Floyd? No. Um, Victor Ortiz? Uh, no, he fought Tyson. Tyson bit his... Holy field. Oh, Evander. Yeah, yeah. Evander. Gotcha. <laughs> Why can I think yeah. of his fucking name? I don't know how you forgot Evander Holyfield. I don't know. I hate him. Wow, he's awesome. No, he's a cheat. They're going to have an exhibition rematch, him and Tyson. Oh, God. 
Yeah, I guess his child support's really packing up. Huh? Hey, if you can get paid to do a, to dance around the ring for a little bit, get mm. get after it. If Tyson doesn't bite his other ear off, oh, I'm that would done. be so awesome. He needed thirty years the in the making. Yeah. He needed to balance out his head. You can get a, you can really complete his <laughs> ear necklace then. The man she finally married was an industrious fellow named Mister Peter, who worked as a handyman for a factory in Quebec. Now that Mrs. Peter was married and the war was over, she was no longer needed at the armory, so she got odd jobs waitressing on and off. She also took in boarders and performed back-alley abortions to women in need. Gotta. During the arduous trial that would eventually end with her swinging from a rope, Mrs. Peter was always jovial and agreeable with everyone that interacted with her, getting on like bosom buddies with various detectives. Ooh, so wait, wait. When you're convicted of a crime, do they put you on, like, American Gladiators? What, you said swinging from a rope. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, she's going to she's gotta, gotta fight, she's face gotta... lightning bolt and, Comet. and thunder. Comet. Those fucking, those balls Blazer. they shoot out of the cannon are going to fuck her up. Mrs. Peter liked Gway very much. He was nine years her junior, and she would often say, I am like a mother to him. According to residents of Lower Town at the time, however, the two of them were much, much closer than that. Her husband, Mr. Peter, even accused her of sleeping with Gwei, which she categorically denied. Mm. He was a business partner who sometimes lended her money. No hinky stuff. Gwei himself denied it fervently, saying to a friend, Have you seen her? Impossible! Brutal. Yeah. But that didn't stop the overwhelming majority believing that the two were certainly fucking. Is this guy actually attractive himself? He kind of sounds stumpy. He's really not bad. Like, to be stumpy, he would have to be thick. He's Mm. underweight as hell. Like, he's very skinny. But he's not that. And he looks like a Frenchman. So he looks like basically every character from Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. pretty much. Gotcha. The third person hanged for the bombing of Flight 108 was Mrs. Peter's older brother, Jenneru Rust. In 1949, Jenneru was a thin-lipped, silver-haired 51-year-old who was crippled in both hips with tuberculosis and was unable to walk without crutches. He was a watchmaker, and he was a good one. Like most people who lose a physical function, that power was transferred to the arms, which are now helping with locomotion. His arms were strong as bulls, with delicate swift hands attached to the bottom. Are you sure he's not the real pussy hound? (laughs) (laughs) He actually super fucking is. I... (laughs) I mean, he sounds like he's the one getting the ladies and... Maybe the other guy's just getting blamed for it. Oh, he's uh, he's an asshole. I'll oh, tell you is that much. He? Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I'm assuming he is because you didn't really talk about him, you know, in a positive light. Right. He's just a crippled old weirdo. Mm. Towards the end of the war, Gway left his job at the Arsenal and became a full-time jewelry salesman. He would tell everyone that would listen that he was a jeweler, but this was a lie. He definitely sold jewelry for a guy on commission. He and his wife left Lower Town to move to Seven Islands, where they would welcome their daughter, Lise, into the world in 1945. Uh, I don't have a good feeling about Lise here. You think Lise might be in some trouble? I think so. I'm kind of getting that impression. Also, all I can think about this guy is that fucking Adam Sandler movie, um, Uncut Gems. I mean, it kind of sounds like him. I have not seen it. Ooh, I bet you'd like it. I've never even heard of it. I bet you'd like it. It's pretty good. Is it new? 
a year or two years, maybe? Then I would not like Mm. it. Guay hit the ground running, traveling from one river town to the next, impressing the locals with his slick salesmanship and his twinkling merchandise. If you needed an engagement ring, a crucifix, or a watch, Guay could set you up with the best ones, and all on an affordable payment plan. He also offered watch repair and would mail Genereux in Quebec the broken watches as he had a workshop in his apartment. Can you get all three of those mixed together? Like an engagement ring, watch, crucifix, because I'd buy that in a minute. Actually, that's I don't know why he didn't do that. (laughs) I'm just thinking about Jesus's... Are, would it be his arms, or do you think like maybe like both his one arm and well, then his and legs? one leg, just yeah. one leg because there's only three. <laughs> and then when he comes together, it, like screams. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Must be one o'clock. Let's go. In the summer of 1947, on a visit back to Quebec, Guay decided to stop and have a very rare beer at a cafe in Lower Town, despite being a known teetotaler. There, he locked eyes with the gorgeous Marie-Ange Robitaille. She was tall, well-built, and kind of dumb. The two hit it off right away. Mm, Wait, so are you saying he's claiming he doesn't drink much, but he's actually a drunk? Teetotaler means, like, abstains from alcohol. Doesn't drink. Why did I think that meant the The other thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think we've actually had this exact conversation before. Probably, honestly, probably. (laughs) The two hit it off, like I said. She was only 17 when she met Gwei, but she liked the cut of his jib, so she told him she was 19. Now, Marie-Ange knew who Gwei was, and certainly knew that he had a wife and child, so they had to concoct a story to tell Marie's parents. She told them that Gwei was a hard-working young bachelor named Roger Anger, and that he would be a perfect <laughs> match for her. Is this Phil's grandpa? We worked with a deaf guy named <laughs> Phil Anger, yeah. and that's I, I hope it is. <laughs> or he could be that linebacker. <laughs> I don't remember what that oh, guy, yeah. Anger, that yeah. linebacker's name is, but okay. Even if she didn't lie about her age, I feel like he wouldn't, it wouldn't have bothered him. I don't think he would have no, cared. I don't yeah. think he would have. Gwei even went so far as to give her a ring to show her parents how serious he was. Obviously, it was pretty easy to get a ring when you're a jewelry salesman, so it wasn't that big of a gesture. If he gave her a crucifix, it'd be more serious. A crucifix ring watch. Mm -hmm. In early 1948, he packed up his wife and child and moved back from Seven Islands to Lower Town. He had secured a nice property where he was going to open up business. It had a storefront and an apartment upstairs. His traveling salesman days were over. Now the sales Mm. were coming to him. Circle's complete here. Mm. Now, the thing that's weird that you say this is a gentleman that I went to school with. His parents were the jewelers. They had the jewelry store, and they lived above it. Perfect. So exactly like that. I don't know if this is just what you do if you're a jeweler. Restaurant uh, You know, Shane, that old-ass man... Um, probably lives above one of his stores. I'm I'm assuming Shane Jeweler Company, mm, that yeah. old ass corpse of a man. Who's I always there. and I get his like voice confused with the no, that's the uh, Wedding Day Jeweler Company. I get mm. him confused with. We'll leave the lights on for you. <laughs> Motel Six. Both of them two could have a career in like phone sex. But yeah, I don't think they're gonna do it. Ooh, mama. Guay bought a few months' worth of radio spots on a Quebec morning show. Soon his checks started bouncing, though, and the station played a new ad they wrote just for him. 
If you want your watches broken forever, bring them down to Gwe's place, right across the street from the Church of St. Joseph. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Pay your bills. What is a Canadian what does a Canadian DJ use for sound effects? I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> Just geese yeah. honking. Yeah. <laughs> About a year after Gway had met Marie Ange, he began showing up at her house three to four times a week and was going through the official courting procedure at the time because dating was very weird in the past. Mm. This lovey-dovey period came crashing down around their tits when Gway's wife finally learned what all the people of Lower Town had already been gossiping about. Her husband was a cheating mm, whore. That's a uh, tough pill to swallow right there. Oof, poor, poor girl. Mrs. Gway pounded on the Robitaille's door and explained to Marie Ange's parents that the charming Roger Angers was actually husband and father J. Albert Gway and was in fact not a suitable bachelor for their young mm. daughter. A few hours later, the Robitaille's threw out their daughter, right out of the house for being a homewrecker and a deceiver. Wow, they just tossed her out, huh? Wow. Marie-Ange immediately called Gway, who immediately called Mrs. Peter, who in her always helpful and agreeable way said of course she could stay with her. By five that morning, Marie-Ange was all moved in. Naturally, like any reasonable parents, regardless of what their child had done, they wanted her back home. The problem was... The Robotize couldn't seem to get a hold of her, and that was by design. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Marie pretended she was living in Montreal, and even sent a postcard saying as much while she and Gwei were there on a weekend getaway. Mm-hmm. In the early months of 1949, she'd had enough of being a teenage side chick, I'd imagine, and decided she wanted to return to her family. But... She still wanted to save face and keep the lie going that she was living in Montreal to her parents. She borrowed $50 from the owner of a restaurant she worked at and booked a round-trip ticket to and from Montreal. When she was waiting for her sleeping car to be ready, she visited the bathroom on the train. Shortly thereafter, she heard knocking. Gway had followed her and told her if she didn't get off the train and come willingly and immediately... He'd make a scene. Mm, the abuser's poking his head through here. Ooh, right in there. What is Gwei's wife doing right now? Just raising lease. Mm, yep. Just like, okay, I guess my my husband's gone. He yep. took the He's... he took the croissant train down to fucking Montreal and they left <sighs> me. It's ridiculous. Gwei took Marie Ange back to Mrs. Peter's boarding apartment, and to prevent her from leaving again, he threw her gloves in the furnace and took her coat with him. Also before leaving, he bit her in the face several times and took her unused train ticket back to the station to pocket the refund. <laughs> is, this, is this how you trap Canadians at home? You just burn their winter gear, and then <laughs> when they look for, like, Fuck, boss, I can't come into work. I ain't got the proper... How how are you going to go outside without boots and a hat? My boyfriend threw my boots in the furnace again. Fuck. What are you going to do? In April, Gwei used his incredibly blunt tactic of just straight up offering the friend of the family, Lucien Carew, $500 to kill his wife. Hmm. He had a genius plan cooked up where Lucien would show up with a bottle of cherry wine and a bag of poison and carefully lace her wine with it. He was sure she would drink it, as French Canadians have a propensity for wine, and cherry was Mrs. Gway's absolute favorite. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's probably so fucking tart 
that sure. you could put so, uh, sulfuric acid in there. Mm. Nobody noticed the difference. This is a little spicy today. <laughs> <laughs> Cherry wine. That sounds fucking disgusting. I don't think I'd like it. No. But I never liked wine even mm. as a when I was drinking. No, not at all, huh? Mm. You seem like a Pinot Grigio boy. It all gave me a headache. <laughs> It's because you're not classy. That's why. I know. I know. I was too busy drinking <laughs> bourbon out of bottles. That's Irish wine uh, for the uneducated out there. Bourbon. <laughs> yeah. Lucian heard Algwe's entire proposal before saying, "No, you're fucking nuts. Don't ask me this nonsense again." Do you? Do you, is it on your bucket list to have somebody to ask you to kill somebody for money by the time you die? Just to see, you yeah, can that'd say be all yes right. or no. Yeah. I had a drunk guy ask me to buy him a gun, and he would Ooh. give me $500 if I bought him a gun. And I said, <sighs> that's that... almost scarier. Yeah, I was like, He's... I don't think I'd, I, I said, I don't think I would ever do that for anyone, sir, <laughs> let alone a drunk person. <laughs> Here's the thing. You don't know what he's going to do with that. At least if a hitman approaches you, you know yeah. what they want. Yeah, they're going to kill somebody. Mm. I have no idea what his plan is with this gun. <laughs> So I bought him three. I no. mean, it's not going to help get him sober, so I no, mean... That's... no. <laughs> in early May, a Philippines Airlines plane exploded and fell into the sea near Manila. The investigation uncovered that a jealous admirer of a woman who had a husband aboard the plane hired a couple ex-cons to conceal a bomb on the aircraft. This was briefly a huge international story, and there's no doubt this was where Guay was struck with inspiration when it reached the Canadian newspapers. The next month, he was riding Flight 108 with watch in hand, noting precisely when the plane crossed the St. Lawrence River. In his mind, it was harder for investigators to solve a plane crash when the wreckage is in water. Gotcha. Okay. I... This... I don't... How many of these fucking things happened? Was like a jealous lover blowing off a plane? Apparently, in the mid to late forties, it was all the mm. time. I was uh, listening to this other podcast I listen to every week on my way to work, and they were talking about some guy who like suicided. He was a co-pilot who suicided the plane to kill himself, but also killed like three, like hundred and whatever. Yeah, while well the while well the pilot was like in the bathroom. Yeah, and then he yeah. got on the radio and was t- was just like saying like this is God's plan. This is whatever. Yeah. Like, oh. <sighs> and like, no, it's not God's plan when you nosedive the fucking plane. Yeah, that is so That's fucking your terrifying. Plan. Yeah. yeah, holy shit! All of this make me never want to get on a plane again, even though I know I will. Yeah, definitely. It's there's no problem with a plane. Mm. Planes are fine. Now that all the pilots are so more more sober, I think we're okay. Yeah, quote unquote more sober. <laughs> less less drunk. They're dr- less drunk than they used to be. Our drunk graph over there since we're, that we're Denzel the movie came. Yeah, out. yeah, we're in the green now, guys. Don't worry about it. In the time leading up to Gwei's terrorist attack, the problems at home and with Marie Ange escalated to their respective boiling points. Early in June, his wife, who was unaware her husband offered Lucien Carew $500 to kill her, packed up the baby and moved out of the apartment. She'd had enough of his attitude and was going to stay at the nearby home of her mother, Mrs. Wilfred Morell. At the exact same time, Marie Ange up and deserted Gway's other apartment and moved back in with her parents, getting a job as a waitress at a lower town restaurant. Mm. After spending every waking moment trying to balance these two women, he suddenly found himself with no women. One evening, as Marie was walking to work, Gwei popped out of the bushes, 
and put a gun in her face, saying if she didn't come back with him right now, he'd paint the sidewalk with both their brains. Jesus Christ. He escalated pretty quickly here. <laughs> he went from... She wanted, birth- he wanted a girlfriend. Okay, yeah. all right. So this guy's like... A weird, almost incel who had two chicks. He's just passionate, okay? He's, <laughs> he's just, just a passionate, passionate about what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> he's just in love, okay? <laughs> she told him to beat it. He wasn't going to pull the trigger because he's a coward, and she kept right walking on to work. He persisted and followed her, but when a nearby beat cop asked if everything was all right, Gwei got spooked and took off at a full sprint. The cop then escorted Marie to the restaurant and hung around for a while in case Gwei decided to return. Of course, the thirsty, scorned, ignored fuckboy did return and was promptly taken to police HQ at City Hall, where he was booked for attempted assault with a deadly weapon. Did he not see the horses parked out front? Like, why would he come back to the restaurant where she was? You know, it's a telltale sign when there's a pack of horses chained up on the front of the restaurant. There's cops in there. It's pretty obvious, guy. What are you doing? What a knucklehead. (laughs) Gwei called his squat and loyal associate, Mrs. Peter, who immediately got him a lawyer, who immediately got the charge reduced to carrying a firearm illegally. After a night in the holding cell, Gwei was fined $25 and shown the door. Sometimes, Canada, you can be a little too nice. That's real nice. Yeah, that's real nice. That's polite there. Two days later, Gwei called his sweetheart, Marie Ange, and told her it was of the highest importance that the two meet. The dumb girl agreed, and he filled her head with more manipulating Mm. lies. I mean, okay, hold on now. Let's not necessarily call her dumb because she was young and he manipulated her the whole time. So she might not know that not every man on the planet acts like this psychopath. Young and dumb. Mm. I mean, yeah, I guess we've all been there. He right? put a gun in her face, mm. and then she still met with him. That's He's pretty dumb. He's just passionate. He's just passionate. He's just passionate about their relationship. He told her his wife was planning to have Marie arrested for besmirching the Gway name, and that she needed to go to Montreal and let all this blow over for a while. She was scared and meekly did as she was told, and the pair of them left at once. Once there, he bought her a whole new wardrobe and was so sweet and attentive that Marie thought he was finally ready to be in love with her and stop being mean and weird. He was so nice that he convinced her to move with him to Seven Islands and basically play his wife and homemaker there. Within a week at Seven Islands, the fighting got to a fever pitch. She was walking out on him to move back with her parents. He handed her a note on the way out the door that read, I love you terribly. We'll be together again soon. Is this uh, like Green Day was playing as well? You know what? I forgot. I was thinking about this today while I was putting these desks together. because I was listening to Spotify and I realized it's impossible to find like a... Uh, I've been really into like Ramstein and Slipknot and that. So I'm just finding random people's playlist. You cannot find one without Three Days Grace on it. Wow. Impossible. Wow. Impossible to do it. So it's, uh, yeah, fucking A, man. That's great. It's Or Breaking Benjamin. <laughs> well, I mean, Slipknot, uh, I make the same reaction yeah. when I hear the word Slipknot. Mm, I, go, I love them. Ugh. Those other two. Get them, get rid of them, and apparently those are all like edgy, yeah, edgy bands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. continue on. Mm-hmm. 
There were also instructions to destroy the letter after reading, but she did not. The lovesick Gwei knew it was time to break out the big guns. The only way him and Marie Ange could be happy is if they were married. There were two glaring unavoidable problems here, though. They lived in Catholic French Canada, where divorce was so, so, so rarely allowed, and if he sued for divorce, it would never work. She had done nothing wrong, like cheating or abuse or any of the things he was actually guilty of. Mm. I kind of hate when, like, culturally they do that. Where you have to sue for divorce? you, You have to bring proof that you have a reason to divorce. Like, that's so fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Or you need a waiting period. Like maybe it'll cool down. Maybe you'll get back together. <laughs> this isn't a fucking civil trial. Like, come on. It's a fucking divorce. It was time to actually figure out a plan to kill his wife. And this time, he would spend quite a bit more time thinking about it. Gwei's cheating ways were well known throughout Lower Town. So if his wife were to just turn up dead one day, he would be the prime suspect. Not to mention outright slaughter was not the way this particular brand of coward chose to operate. Gwei apparently discussed these problems with half of Lower Town because an anonymous letter showed up for Mrs. Gwei saying to look out because she was in terrible danger. Does he just, is he just one of those people who just like tells us problems to everybody? Yes, yes he is. Oh my God, those people aren't, you can, I, would, I can't think of who is that person at work. Like the one guy who had a problem, he'd tell every the whole shop. Like there didn't even have to be a rumor mill because he just told everybody his problem, just straight up. Yep. Yeah, like geez. And my favorites, like with Shitburger, where that problem like modified slightly to every person. Yep. Mm. He, he 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 like perfected it. He was like a road comic. I was gonna say maybe he was actually out. a chaos magician. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> just putting his intentions out yeah. there. <laughs> The last person he consulted with was his old mother stand-in, Mrs. Peter. By mid-month, both she and her watchmaker brother, Genero, agreed to help Gwei kill his wife. It's clear what Gwei's motivations were to murder her, but what did Mrs. Peter and Genero have to gain from this? When the brother and sister were tried for the murder, the prosecution didn't even attempt to find a motive. The most widely held theory was that the two were just under Gwei's spell. He was an expert manipulator and was able to bend their little minds to his will. Mm, that is weird. It's very strange. How the hell? Yeah, he's probably just charismatic or whatever, manipulative, uh, stuff like that. Other theories include Mrs. Peter owed Gwei $600 and mm. Gwei promised to wipe out the debt. And Jenneru was in a tight spot. He had gotten a woman pregnant and she was demanding $300 to see her through the ordeal. Look. I said he was a sex freak. All right. And he is. He's well, the real pussy hound this. of this episode. He also wanted a one-time 50% discount on a $12 ring Gwei was selling. He had intentions to give it to another yeah. girl he had his sights Hell on. Oh, yeah. You know a girl's not going to turn down a $12 ring <laughs> for $6. From, from the old creepy man with tuberculosis hips. I would love to know uh, all our married fans out there um would you prefer or not to prefer or would you prefer or not to hear if your significant other had gotten a discount or used a coupon on your of course wedding not <laughs> of course not some people might like to know maybe Actually, they're like yeah. hey he's financially he's responsible yeah. <laughs> he's thrifty yeah we'll never go broke <laughs> And Genero had another reason for wanting to kill Mrs. Gwei. 
He showed up one night while Gwei was away on business with less than gentlemanly intentions and was rebuffed. Like all embarrassed, rejected boys, what better way to get your revenge than murder? Mm, he's got a very fragile ego. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Early in August, Gwei took a riverboat up to Bay Camo, carrying with him two suitcases full of jewelry for sale. Business was very slow in the town, however, so he stowed his suitcases in a warehouse and hopped on a boat headed back to Quebec. I'm honestly surprised nobody just, like, robs him. I know. Yeah, like, I would stick him up right away. So his jewelry's good, though. It's not like yeah, it fake seems jewelry. It's, yeah, it's not fake. Yeah, mm. it's just he, he's selling it for a reputable guy on okay. commission. So it's not it's it, it's literally like Shane Co. and not like Wedding Day. Sure. I <laughs> I don't know if there's a difference there. I haven't really I bought don't jewelry. I don't I don't either. Um, but Wedding Day has like the two Russian brothers. I think oh. is what they are. Uh, and we have a lot of stupid fucking jewelry commercials in Minnesota, I'm realizing. Zales, K. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nothing's, what is it? Nothing's like K or something? Yeah. A kiss with K. Every or... kiss begins yeah. with K. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's true at all. Right away, he met with Mrs. Peter and Jenneru and discussed the process of making a bomb with them. Since Jenneru was a delicate-handed craftsman, he volunteered to build a detonating mechanic in his workshop. Mrs. Peter was sent out to get dynamite, blasting caps, and a length of fuse. She's got to go to the hardware store. And that's exactly where she went. (laughs) Thank goodness even in the 40s, though, you couldn't buy dynamite without signing for it. So Mrs. Peter used a fake name, saying she was picking this up for a lady in the next town over who had some nasty tree stumps on her property. Mm. She walked out with 20 half-pound sticks, 15 blasting caps, and 30 foot of fuse. She was almost late for her shift at the diner, so she took it all with her and wrapped the precious cargo in butcher paper. Yeah, she's already got three write-ups. She can't be late <laughs> She's got to finish packing <laughs> yeah. this dynamite up One at more write-up, and she might be out of there. <laughs> the dynamite can wait. <laughs> Gwei showed up to collect the goods later that evening and delivered them to Jenneru's workshop before collecting his wife for a week-long vacation to Seven Islands. He pulled out all the stops on this trip, paying her so much attention she almost burst Mm. from it. Here, the watch guy, um, the pussyhound watch guy, I'm envisioning he has like that one spectacle where you can like, it has like seven other little glasses you can keep zooming in. Like a seven focal. Mm, He's like Geppetto of watches and bombs, Mm, apparently. I like it. Mm. I don't really trust watchmakers all of a sudden. I don't really. Maybe I should. I don't know. There's a lot of little parts they're messing with in there, and I'm assuming that means they know bombs. Well, that's the the metaphor for God, right? The blind watchmaker or whatever. Mm, Is it? Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before, Mm -hmm. but uh, I kind of wish they had Die Hard 7 the watchmaker mm. <laughs> or the, the, <laughs> the pussy hound watchmaker. He's not taking him down. <laughs> the Nakatomi plane <laughs> watchmaking plaza. When the week was up and the two returned to Quebec, Gwei couldn't wait to go check in with Jenneru. He hadn't made any progress at all though. But just then, a customer came in to drop off a watch for repair and Jenneru very stupidly and loudly said, now there's a guy who can tell us about dynamite. 
Hell yeah. That guy could indeed tell them about dynamite, <laughs> as he was a retired miner. Mm. Goy and Jenneru hastily explained that they wanted to use dynamite to kill fish in a lake, and they began grilling him. The retired miner wasn't much help. He said amateurs shouldn't use dynamite, and you can get rid of fish in a lake just as effectively with lime. He went on to describe for 45 minutes about how to lime a lake. They were so bored, <laughs> but they feigned interest. You know what? I was, Remember how many times we've talked about like building bombings on this show? Now all I can envision is like the stereotypical miner like building yeah. all these bombs for him. Yeah, like a prospector. Yeah, like a dwarf with a mining outfit on there. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of wanted to find a miner now and just like randomly be like, oh, there's a guy who could tell us about dynamite right there. <laughs> what a weird thing to walk into a shop and hear. <laughs> Whoa, me? No. <sighs> He's like, finally, somebody understands me. <laughs> Left to their own devices, Gwei and Jenneru decided to just trial by error themselves a time bomb, mm. which consisted of an alarm clock, a detonating cap, a dry cell battery, and a detonator. Jenneru rigged up an experimental bomb that was only missing the dynamite, put it all in a cardboard box. While him and Gwei took cover in the next room, the alarm clock set off the detonator, which exploded the blasting cap. Success! Mm. They had figured it out. I was honestly like expecting like a combination of Wiley e. Coyote and, and Daffy Duck, like mm -hmm. you know where they blow shit up and their heads just like black, a black like, match head. It's just yeah. it's just blink, blink. them constantly trying to get this thing to work. Next, Mrs. Peters' value to the murderous trio shone through when she suggested they enlist a taxi driver she was fucking who lived upstairs. Yeah, good call. Her plan on paper was brilliant. The driver would pick up Gwei and his wife with the time bomb already in the trunk of the cab. Then, with five minutes left to go on the bomb, the driver would pull over with motor troubles and him and Gwei would go for help, leaving Mrs. Gwei comfortably in the car to explode. This would have saved 22 lives. But when they brought the cab driver down to fill him in, he said, get fucked, I'm not blowing up my cab, and walked right back upstairs. <sighs> he just finished paying off that thing. <laughs> Blow up a goddamn cab. Mrs. Peter, now fearing that she had been less than subtle, rushed up to his apartment to try and explain it all away as an elaborate joke. The time bomb was actually an illegitimate child she wanted him to mm. smuggle out of the city, a service <laughs> he had provided in the past. Hell yeah, okay. <laughs> it was a joke! <laughs> I'm just kidding! Oh my god, can you imagine, like, let's say you call up an Uber driver, and like, as they're driving you to the location, like, look, I'm gonna put a bomb in the backseat, <laughs> I'm gonna have my wife get in here, you have motor troubles, and then you just leave and let the bomb do its thing. And if you don't, I'm leaving you a one-star review. I'll tell you that much. No tip No either. tip. No, I'm... like a 20-cent passive-aggressive <laughs> yeah. tip. Up until Mrs. Peter almost fucked up the entire operation, using an airplane to kill his wife was only in the top five of Gwei's ideas to bomb her. A plane, of course, was the most likely way to not leave any damning evidence, but Mrs. Gwei was so frightened of flying that it was unlikely she would ever board a plane by herself. That might be a problem right there. Yeah. Thinking hard over this problem, Gwei remembered his two suitcases he'd stored up the river at Bay Camo and sent his wife for them. 
She wasn't the most happy person on the planet to go be a pack mule, but Gwei had been so sweet and perfect to her on their vacation that she wanted to do a nice gesture mm. for him. You see, gentlemen and ladies out there, you do something nice for your, your significant other, they'll take a, two suitcases full of jewelry for you. Yeah. Like, just, you got to do something nice for them. That's like, it. Sp- spend a little attention. Mm. Pay a little attention. That's all you Honestly, take them all to the Seven Islands. I don't exactly know where that is. Yeah. But well, there's Seven three, Islands. 300 miles from from Quebec. Well, there's clearly Seven Islands. Yeah. It's seven times the fun. It's a beautiful place, mm. too, yeah. On Tuesday, September 6th, Gwei went to the Canadian Pacific Airlines ticketing agent and made a reservation for his wife on Flight 108, stopping at Bay Camo on September 9th, which was the earliest possible ticket he could get. To throw future investigators off his track, and probably also his wife, he bought a round-trip ticket and even spent the extra 50 cents on a $10,000 flight insurance policy on his wife with him as the beneficiary. He was never one to pass up guaranteed money. Okay, all right. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if I've ever bought that insurance. I figured it was always a racket, but... Yeah. Uh, well, if you're guaranteed to blow the plane up, right. buy it for does everyone it, on the plane. Does it cover that, though? Yeah. Death on the plane, yeah. <laughs> for 50 cents. 50 it cents? is a lot of money. It's two buffalo nickels. Well, you imagine if, if enough people buy it mm. and planes aren't going down, mm. so they got it saved up after, after a bit. I know. think it's like 50 bucks now, right? Probably, yeah. Or, and that, covers, not- that mostly covers like cancellations. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a big thing. Like, you want to cancel your flight, you got to pay a lot extra. Oh, yeah. The entire plan almost crashed when the airline called Mrs. Gway at her mother's house to inform her there had been a cancellation and they had room on that morning's flight. If she hurried, she'd certainly make it. Luckily for Gway, he was staying there as well and picked up the phone before anyone else could. He informed them that she could not change her plans. He certainly couldn't change his plans, as Jenneru and Mrs. Peter were still putting the finishing touches on the mm. bomb. They don't even have this thing ready yet. Mm-mm. They okay. still got two days. They're they're lazy French Canadians. Mm. That's how it works. They're like Adam of bomb making. That's right. Wait till the last minute. Yeah, and get a little assistance from Kelly. Beautiful. <laughs> Nineteen forty nine. Kelly, is that what this is here? Mm-hmm. Whoever that person is. Mm-hmm. On the 8th, Gwei spent the entire day with his wife and child. He only left their company once to call Mrs. Peter and ask her to meet him at Gare du Palais, the biggest railroad station in Quebec, at 8.15 the following morning and to drop in on Genereau to have him set the time on the bomb to go off at 10.45 a.m., which, based on his recon from months earlier, would be the exact time the plane would be flying over the St. Lawrence River's widest mm, part. I love how this is recon, and it's literally just him <laughs> getting flying on a plane once. and looking at his crucifix watch yep. there. Interesting. I'm doing some heavy recon here, boys. God, what a loser. <laughs> Goy had a strange habit when staying at his mother-in-law's house. He would hang his pants on the back of the bathroom door every night before he went to bed. One of Mrs. Gway's brothers, who was living there at the time, was surprised when he woke up at 7.20 on the 9th and Gway's pants were gone. He was never an early bird. What? What's the pants thing? What's I don't the point know. of it? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. And it was only at his mother-in-law's house where he would hang his pants on the back of the bathroom Did door. Did he think, like, night gremlins were going to steal them or... 
And that was the only, like, consecrated place? Yeah, I don't know. That's really peculiar. Well, shortly after 7, Gwei had stopped by Jenneru's place to grab the bomb. It was already packed in a cardboard box and set to go off at 10.45. They wrapped the box in butcher paper, tied shut with string, wrote Fragile on it, and addressed it to the non-existent Alfred Plouffe at Bay Camo. Then, picking another bullshit name, they wrote that the sender was Delphus Bouchard hmm. of St. Simeon, which is a small town about 100 miles from Quebec. I, I love how you can just like kind of like kind of make up like easy names and it just sounds French. Can Del you imagine if Ted, can you imagine if Ted Kaczyn, Ted Kaczynski work was in Canada? You'd never catch him. No, you would not. There's an endless na- you can make so many names with O I and U. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! Mm-hmm. You could never you'd never be caught. No, it's, yeah, especially in like English speaking places, <laughs> people are like Ugh, that's that's rough. <laughs> Gwei took his deadly package in a taxi to the train station, where he checked it into a coin locker for safekeeping while he strolled down to the station cafeteria for a nice hearty Mm. breakfast. He's got a big day at him. Oh, yeah. At precisely 8.15, Mrs. Peter walked in and sat down at his table. They chatted over coffee and then walked back to the coin locker. Mrs. Peter took the package by taxi to the airport and arranged to have it shipped out on Flight 108 that morning. Then she got back in her taxi and headed back to Quebec. Gwei rushed back to his mother-in-law's. He explained that he just couldn't sleep, and since it was already morning, he'd figure he'd go out for a nice relaxing cup of coffee. At 9.30, the Gwei's took a taxi to the Chateau Frontenac, where Albert Gwei got out and Mrs. Gwei continued on to the airport. A few minutes later, Mrs. Peter returned from the airport and went to Jenneru's house. Gwei called her there and was over the moon to hear that there had been no hitches in their plan. Well, the airline will always fuck things up if you don't. Mm. Flight 108 was five minutes late departing Quebec that morning, and that's why the plane would come to rest on the side of Cap Torment instead of the St. Lawrence River as intended. Just because of a plane delay. Uh, hmm. I I mean, if he you tried to never do- trust the airlines to run on time. I was going to say, if he did this on Sun Country, it would blow up in the airport yeah. uh, hangar there. Two days early somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gwei wandered the streets of Quebec for almost an hour after the bomb was supposed to go off and then made his way to his mother-in-law's house. He told her he had a major headache, so she went to the corner store for some pills. The first reporting of the crash came over the radio on the 1 o'clock news. It was just a quick message with no names of the passengers. And by 3.30, Gwei's mother-in-law was getting calls left and right asking if her daughter had survived the crash. She had no idea and begged Gwei to go check on the status of his wife. Wow. What do you think he felt like waiting that whole time? I mean, this whole thing is fucked beyond belief, but... You gotta have butterflies in your tumbly. (sighs) Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, it's so crazy, he would go to this length just to kill her. I know. Hmm. Gwei went with his little daughter to the ticketing office in Chateau Frontenac and asked the clerk on duty if it was true that the plane his wife had been on had gone down. The girl solemnly nodded, and Gwei put on an Oscar-worthy performance, collapsing into a chair and sobbing and moaning. It got so intense that a priest was summoned from the church down the street (laughs) to calm the man down. Jesus. Sounds like fucking Leo DiCaprio performance there. Can you imagine his ugly ass crying though? Oh god, He's I like, know. Eh. Oh god, there's nothing worse than ugly crying. 
<laughs> it makes me so uncomfortable. I wonder if any of it was real, you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Crocodile tears, yep. though, for sure. Mm-hmm. The place the plane landed, Cap Torment, was about an hour's hike up a treacherously steep mountain trail from some tracks of the Canadian Pacific that run along the north bank of the St. Lawrence. Well, let's be honest here. You can't call it Cap Torment without being dangerous, right? Yeah. It mm. should be about the worst place on earth. Like, this isn't... <laughs> Can you imagine if they you went to, like, a skiing place and the bunny was called Cap Torment? I wouldn't go on it. just corpses everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, see, I'll be in the chalet. <laughs> By the end of the day, only a handful of people had made it to the crash site. Several that had tried to reach the wreckage by car ended up having to walk back down the mountain after their vehicles either got stuck or flipped over on the steep mountainside. Gwei was one of the handful that made it. Like most of the killers we've covered, he was attracted to the violent, gruesome results of his actions. Unfortunately for him, police had the wreck cordoned off and were guarding the scene from looters and souvenir hunters. So poor Gwei didn't get to see what he wanted. Oh, he actually would go on to say he wish he could see the mangled he ass bodies and to. shit. He definitely okay. wanted to. All right. That, God, that's got to be. I saw that one picture of that girl crashed her Porsche and her, her like head's gone. I couldn't imagine seeing 23 people. All smushed Fucked. in the front of the plane. Yeah. Later, he would learn that of his 23 horribly mutilated victims, his wife's face was the only one still recognizable. He would also learn later that among the very few possessions that survived the explosion and subsequent crash were two claim tickets for suitcases full of jewelry in a warehouse at Bay Camo. Mm. Okay, so the that's really weird that it just happened that those two things were, you know, okay. And those slips are going to be mm, valuable mm. to the investigation. Mm. For the first few days, no one thought this was anything other than a horrific accident. However, the Canadian Pacific Railway, who were the parent company of the affected airline, were outraged. There hadn't been a passenger death on one of their flights since 1942, and the company was distraught that this failure looked like it could only be explained by a failure of their employees or their equipment, neither of which were acceptable to them. I think old Timmy had a few too many Moltsons. What do you say? No, okay, so they haven't had anybody die... In seven years in uh-huh. there. That doesn't seem like a very long time. And even that it? wasn't a crash. That was a... Uh, uh, mm. uh, uh, he had too much fun. Some hit his head. Oh, yeah. gotcha. <laughs> Just a hardened croissant hit him. Yes, him. yes, yeah. Hit a fucking croissant fall on him. The head of the Canadian Pacific's investigation department was a shrewd bulldog of a man named Jean E. Bellinger. He had been looking into accidents for Canadian Pacific for years, but he hadn't until now had the misfortune of investigating a plane crash. Gwei thought things were about to go back to normal and the crash would be chalked up as just one of those things. Bellinger would be the roadblock that stopped that from happening. Mm. The company was, of course, miserable as well as outraged at this failure, but on a less emotional note, they also wanted to be found not responsible for this, or else they'd be on the hook for 23 lawsuits that would certainly put a dent in profits. 
One of those relatives was already sniffing around with a lawyer looking to hold the airline responsible. And, of course, it was J.L. McGoy. Oh, my God. Already trying to get a lawsuit in action. Uh, I mean, honestly, when you were talking about the death thing, I'm like, do they actually care about that? Or is it just because of the money thing? And I think this kind of confirms it. But, uh, yeah, this guy is dumb. Oh, yeah. Oh, stupid or as yeah. stupid as it does. You know. <laughs> Over the weekend, the various agencies that were investigating the crashes, main concern was collecting bodies, or at least body parts, and transporting them to Quebec for a coroner's report. There was a full-blown fist fight that broke out over who got the bodies between two rival <laughs> undertaker firms. I could see it. One had been hired by the airline, while unknowingly, the provincial government hired the other. They both ended up agreeing to just take half the bodies. You know, I, I kind of envision this, like, if you're showing up, you're going to collect the bodies in this state. Like, is it kind of that feeling when you, you get a puzzle mm-hmm. and it kind of just, you first dump it out or whatever, if you're that type of puzzle maker. Meat puzzle. And you just, you just kind of like sit back and you're like, I'm going to be here a while. Yep. Like, is it that same feeling? For these undertakers. Uh, this is the rest of my fucking day. <laughs> yeah. Guess I'm not watching Sid and Nancy tonight or whatever. <laughs> Sid I don't, and Nancy. I don't even know what they watch on TV. <laughs> uh, young single lawyer, Quebecian lawyer. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> or Matlock the prequel. <laughs> there you go. Goy at the morgue in Quebec was trying to follow up his Oscar performance from the hotel. Each time the doors opened and a new body was rolled in, he would tremble and whimper. When his wife was finally brought in, he refused to identify her remains, saying he preferred to remember her just the way she was. So the horrifying task fell to her brother. Mm. So what, the door opened, he'd just start crying and it closed and be fine? <laughs> yeah. As, as, if it wasn't his wife, he'd be like, mm. oh, 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 God. What but, a uh, fucking uh, asshole. Yeah, and he killed her and he made his brother look at her mangled fucking body because he, he didn't want to. Mm. Well, I mean, I guess then it... Uh, Makes you believe he's actually a distraught husband, right? Yep, absolutely. Mm. But what a shithead. Mm-hmm. Gway threw a hell of a party for his wife's funeral. She was to be buried in an $800 casket, which was phenomenally expensive, and a five-foot cross of red roses with a heart of white roses in the middle was to serve as the centerpiece. He acted absolutely gutted at the funeral parlor and the cemetery. His neighbors from Lower Town, who knew how much of a cheating asshole he was to his wife, were awestruck at this ludicrous display. But after hanging around for just a few minutes, even the most hardened critic ended up feeling sorry for the young father of a motherless child. Yeah, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd have to. <laughs> he laid it on thick. I think everybody's been to a funeral where you know that, like, that one person in attendance is was just an asshole or whatever to the dead person. And they're just balling up a storm. And you're like, why are you even here? I know. Honestly. During the week after the disaster, Canadian Pacific investigator Bellinger stayed at HQ in Montreal and sent three junior agents in his place, believing nothing was out of the ordinary about the crash. One of the three called Bellinger and said he didn't like it. Some of the wreckage looked like an explosion had ripped through the plane, and to corroborate further, several people on the ground reported hearing a loud pop and seeing a white puff of smoke before the plane went into a nosedive. Mm. 
Furthermore, there was evidence pointing to the propellers still spinning as the plane hit the ground. The tips of the props were bent forward, which meant to engineers that the engine was still fully functional as it crashed. To add to this, although the plane crashed nose first, and you'd expect all the bodies and viscera to be flung towards the cockpit, there were bits of flesh splattered on the back of the plane, meaning that there had been rearward thrust. Gotcha. Okay, now here's what I'm wondering. So the bomb went off, the plane hit, like, is most of the plane, I don't know if they had pictures or whatever, but is most of the plane kind of like the one that hit the Pentagon where it's just vapor? Nope. It's got like a big old hole in it, right? Yeah. And then when it hits the ground, it doesn't like, it doesn't vaporize like that plane did. Allegedly does. Allegedly did. Um, But yeah, it's, I just feel like there would be a bomb mark, right? Or I guess it explodes. Yeah, there's a big hole in the fuselage. Yeah, I guess, I guess the plane probably exploded on its own a little bit when it hit, you'd think, right? Or caught fire maybe? No, it's not like a... A video game or whatever, you know. Wait, are you saying yeah. that I've been lied to when I play GTA? A little bit you've been God lied to. damn it. <laughs> I just feel like the bomb marks, or was it just enough bomb to like kind of bring it down? Do you know what I mean? It blew a giant mm. hole in the plane. Mm. And you're not opposed to have those. Right. Yeah. Okay. I just figure for the investigators, it would seem like it'd be more obvious. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Oh. Well, see, we'll get into it pretty okay. quick here. Okay. But there are certain things on a plane like fire extinguishers and stuff that could have done that. Under pressure or something, blown up, freak accident. Gotcha. But okay. that's what the, that's the, they're going to try and figure out. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Things weren't adding up for investigators on the ground. What could have caused this explosion? There was still fuel in the gas tank, so it certainly didn't start there. Next on the checklist were batteries, fire extinguishers, and accessories that had even the most remote possibility of combusting. Well, enough trace evidence was collected to prove nothing that was supposed to be on that plane exploded. One nagging issue was certainly tripping investigators up were reports from the first people to reach the crash site. They claimed the smell was unmistakably familiar to dynamite, which was definitely not a standard accessory on planes. In fact, the Aeronautics Act of Canada explicitly forbids the transport of dynamite by air except under very rare and extreme circumstances, and Flight 108 was not authorized. I could just see these guys being like, Smells like dynamite, but I don't see any Acme boxes, so yeah. I don't yeah. think that fucking Wiley Coyote is up to this one. All right, who's the next suspect here? The condition of the plane didn't leave any room for speculation as to where the explosion took place. In the baggage section, number one compartment on the left side of the aisle, leading from the cabin to the cockpit. The seat that was closest to this compartment was found a quarter mile away from the rest of the crash, Jesus. leading investigators to the conclusion that it was literally blown out of the plane while it was still in the air. See, I was envisioning it was underneath the plane that blew up, but it was actually in like a storage compartment. Sort of, not like an overhead bin, mm. but it is right under. So it's like compartment one is pretty much right under where the uh, front seats are. Gotcha, Okay. Investigator Bellinger and his lackeys began checking the items that were stored in number one compartment. 
This turned out to be fairly easy as most of the cargo on the plane was offloaded at Quebec and everything remaining was moved to compartment 1 according to the plane's manifest. There were 8 pieces of luggage belonging to passengers on the plane, 3 valises, 2 typewriters, and 3 pieces of express airmail. One contained car parts, one contained lingerie, and the third was a 25-pound package with unspecified contents that had been shipped from Delphus Bouchard in St. Simeon to Alfred Plouffe in Bay Camus. Mm. How long did it take them to figure out those weren't real people? Almost, they figured it out pretty quick. Mm. The last mystery parcel is where investigators focused all their efforts. Nobody by the name Alfred Plouffe lived in Bay Camus, and further, none of the citizens had ever heard of that name either. As for Delphus Bouchard, there actually was a resident of St. Simeon named that, and he worked as a night watchman on a bridge, but he had not sent any packages by airmail ever. Mm, okay, all right. I mean, I figured that was going to happen. They would be one of these fucking people. But, uh, but yeah, that's too bad for the night watchman. Yeah. The night man. The night man. It was proving difficult to find the identity of the woman who checked the package with the clerk at Chateau Frontenac. All they knew was that she was dark-haired, in her 40s, and arrived shortly before Flight 108 was due to depart, and then left in the same taxi. The baggage clerk remembered the driver had lugged the package into the terminal for the lady, something that stood out to her as cab drivers usually weren't that nice. Wow, okay, they noticed... There ain't no way in hell a real cab driver's doing this unless there's something fishy going on. <laughs> and actually, he Holy is just shit. a real cab driver. He's not even in on it. He's <laughs> oh, just really? A, yeah, he's just he's a regular, just a good he's guy. just a nice dude. Okay. I guess he hasn't run into a Jameis Winston-type uh, passenger yet. <laughs> James, oh, James Winston. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> As the evidence kept piling up and pointing to foul play, the passenger manifest was being gone over with a fine-tooth comb. At first, of course, all attention was placed on the three Kennecott copper execs. Although there were no visible motives for this, investigators went down the path of maybe this was corporate sabotage from another copper company. While the official police were doing that, Bellinger systematically went through everyone else on the list and interviewed everyone they knew. Mm, I love that corporate sabotage is like an actual real thing. I know. Blowing up executives from other copper companies. That's pretty far-fetched. But so is, I guess, blowing up your wife to marry (laughs) her. Oh, I I see you've never watched the movie uh, The Stuff, where one of the main characters is a corporate spy. And that's like his whole job. He goes around and spies on uh, companies Mm. for other companies. Does he kill anyone? No, they. Uh, he discovers that the ice cream is from an alien race and is killing everybody. Oh, it's a very good movie. Actually. Okay, yeah, it's it's like campy as shit. Wait, is that the Liguizamo a... one? No, no, no. This is okay. from like I don't seventies or eighties, okay. maybe. So maybe. not Liguizamo. No, 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 no. After that exhausting task, Bellinger found there was only one passenger on the plane with a credible motive: little Mrs. Gway. On September 14th, a coroner's jury was convened to consider the crash and determine fault. Their verdict was... Accidental death due to explosion of unknown origin. Nothing was said about whether this was criminal or not. The verdict completely protected Canadian Pacific from legal repercussions because the jury concluded that the explosive agent was not a part of the plane that failed. I mean, I guess that's fair, right? 
Bellinger and Canadian Pacific were not satisfied, although they technically won, and he passed along his findings about Mrs. Guay to the Municipal Police of Quebec. They remembered Albert Guay from the Marie-Ange gun-stalking incident and pointed Bellinger towards her. He described the dark-haired squat woman they were looking for, and Marie-Ange said, Oh, of course, that's Mrs. Peter, my landlord. (laughs) (sighs) She literally is a sitcom woman from this time. Dumb fucking kid. God damn. Bellinger was then able to track down the taxi driver that had impressed the clerk with his gallantry. All Quebec taxi drivers are forced to keep meticulous ride records. And on the morning of the 9th, there was only one taxi in all of Quebec that performed a round trip to and from the airport. The driver's name was Paul Henri Pelletier, who remembered the trip perfectly. Mm, you can't get one past Paul Henry Peltier. You cannot. He's a sneaky son of a bitch. He's the he's the number one goaltender of the <laughs> French Frenchies. <laughs> the passenger was a dark-haired woman with a heavy package marked fragile. On the way to Frontenac, he had barely avoided hitting a potato truck. He knew she had to be a local because she referred to Chateau Frontenac as the Chateau, and out-of-towners would always call it Chateau Frontenac. Gotcha. And she tipped 55 cents on a 3.45 fare, which was pretty good. Paul was sitting at a bar later in the day when he heard news of the crash and turned to his friend and said, That lady I took to the airport certainly lost her. Big, fragile package. <laughs> oh, Paul, you're nasty, dude. How's that nasty? Because he, he, he said just... he lost her big, fragile package. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, she did. <laughs> Little did he know that was a bomb he was, <laughs> he was carrying. <laughs> Climbing the investigative ladder one rung at a time, the next step was to ID Mrs. Peter as the one who delivered the package. The baggage clerk had only a vague memory of what she looked like, Peltier was going to have to be mm, the one to do it. You know damn well he knows exactly what she looks oh, like. yeah. Gway thought he was in the clear thanks to the tight lips of investigators. As far as he or anyone else in the public knew, the crash of the airliner was going to be written off as one of those crazy unsolvable mysteries. With all that in mind, they didn't want to blow their cover, so they didn't take Mrs. Peter into custody right away. Instead, they ordered Peltier to hang around outside her apartment and get a real good look when she came out. Mm, little stalking. After Peltier spent many fruitless hours outside, it became clear that Peter wasn't going to come out. So investigators had Peltier go knock on the door and pretend that someone ordered a taxi at this address. Unfortunately, Mrs. Peter's roommate answered the door and sent him away. Just then, an officer remembered that one of Mrs. Peter's sons from a previous marriage had been in some juvenile trouble with the law. Thinking quickly, the officer phoned the juvie court judge who tried the case, and he phoned Mrs. Peter, asking her to come down right away as he had some questions regarding her son. These Canucks are pretty uh, pretty uh, resourceful here. They're pretty crafty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they all have like backdoor ways to get what they want. I'm honestly half surprised they didn't just leave out a fucking like trail of donuts trying <laughs> to get her out of the fucking apartment at this point. Jesus Christ. As she rushed outside, Peltier was waiting in his cab, but she was wearing huge dark glasses that she had not been wearing on the 9th. They needed 100% positive ID, and investigators had no problem biding their time. 
Peltier, on the other hand, was much less patient and very excited to be involved in a big investigation. He got in touch with the journalists he knew from La Canada, a French morning newspaper published in Montreal. When you said she came out with her glasses and the police didn't know what to do, I kind of wish they just called up Rowdy Rowdy Piper to come fucking <laughs> kick the glasses ah, off her face. Ah, maybe that's what those glasses were. Maybe she was seeing the lizards She's for what they were. the alien people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what movie? They Live. They Live. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend everybody oh, watch it. so good. The reporter wrote a story without mentioning any names and said the cops were hot on the trail of a woman who delivered an unusual package. The story came out on September 15th, but Gway didn't see it straight away. On the 18th, he met up with Mrs. Peter at her apartment and asked Marie Ange to meet him there as well. He told Marie Ange that after a short period of grieving, he intended for the two of them to live together as husband Mm, and wife. That's cute. Yeah, he just had to get over his wife real quick and then, you know. <laughs> well, he's been crying so much. He's got to stop eventually. God, those he's, tears got to dry up. I was going to say, the human body can only produce so many tears, right? Mm-hmm. They run out eventually. The next day, however, he certainly saw the story. He rushed back to Mrs. Peter's place and told her they were in deep shit. But he had the perfect solution to get them out of it. Mrs. Peter should kill herself and leave a note saying she put the bomb on the plane hoping to kill Albert Gway, but his wife got on the plane instead. Oh, 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 you want me to kill myself? That'll get us out of this whole pickle, Mrs. Mrs. Peter. (laughs) You'll be free from charges, too. (laughs) (laughs) When it came to Gway, Mrs. Peter was always willing to help. This was a bridge too far, however. He's asking just a hair bit too much there. (laughs) That night, she told another friend about Gway's crazy request, then called her doctor, complaining that her recurring stomach condition was acting up and asking him to get her a bed at a hospital. Mm. She took with her a bottle of sleeping pills, and once she was all checked in and put in a bed, she ate half the bottle, only because she felt the doctors weren't paying her condition enough attention and she wanted to boost their interest and get better service. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they won't answer that call button. You gotta pop a half a bottle of sleeping pills. That'll get them in there. Yeah, that's a a real call for help. Can you imagine popping a half a bottle of sleeping pills? And they're like, oh my God. Oh my God, let's help. Can you just turn the volume up on the TV a little bit? (laughs) I'm really tired of these fucking... Soap operas. Can you change the channel for the love of God? Nobody was answering my call button. I had to swallow all these pills. (laughs) Meanwhile, the friend Mrs. Peter confided in told the owner of the restaurant Mrs. Peter was waitressing at about the Gway situation, and the owner told his friend, who was an engineer for Canadian Pacific. On September 21st, Gway called his sweetie Marie-Ange and asked if she would do him the honor of coming over and celebrating his 32nd birthday with him. And she said she was busy. <laughs> <laughs> they got a lot of stuff going on right now. Uh, I, I got butterflies that yeah. I'm chasing in the park uh-huh. right now. I can't come over. <laughs> on September 23rd, Mrs. Peter returned home from the hospital and was immediately questioned by waiting authorities. Without a fight, she admitted to bringing a strange package to the airport on the morning of September 9th as a simple favor to J. Albert Gway, who told her there was a statue in it. To make sure she couldn't slip away, police arrested her on attempted suicide by sleeping pills as they kept putting the puzzle together. Gotcha, okay. 
Gwei was sitting with a big scowl on his face at his dead wife's mother's house, where he still lived. He was seething as he ate his birthday dinner that Marie Ange rejected to be with him today. When word of Mrs. Peter came over the radio, he stood up, slammed his hand on the table, and shouted, Damn slut! He ran out the front door, shouting behind him that he was going to visit his mother. <laughs> Simultaneously, the Attorney General of Quebec issued a warrant for his arrest. He was picked up in his mom's driveway, and the following morning was arraigned on a charge of murdering his wife. When his mother-in-law heard the news, all she could say in her shocked state was, He's a boy with big dreams. He blew up my daughter in a plane. Here's the thing. If he's like, damned slut, and then he's like, I gotta go see my mom. Like, <laughs> doesn't something seem a little funny about that? Yeah. Or am and, I... And she couldn't hear the radio, so she didn't know what was going on. <laughs> she just heard damn slut, and then he ran out the door. What the fuck? All right. Gwei was locked up in the Quebec men's jail, and right off the bat, they planted a stool pigeon as his celly, and guess what? Gwei was only too ready to talk to his new roommate. Yeah, he seemed a little chatty, I've gathered this whole episode. He explained how Jenneru was a master watchmaker that used his skills to make the mechanism for his bomb. When the cop showed up at Jenneru's house, he readily admitted to making the mechanism for Gwei, and even showed them how but insisted that Gwei told him he was going to use it to blast stumps on his property. Mm, okay. The Crown proved that a dynamite time bomb could have been used to blow up the plane, but the hard part was proving that's actually what happened. Test after test after test were run on the wreckage and the debris. After getting a solid chemical structure off some of the bits of clothing found in suitcases, scientists went out and bought similar clothing, packed it in suitcases, and blew them up with dynamite. This produced identical chemical deposits, unlike when they tried with gasoline, black powder, white powder, and, D and TNT. Gotcha. Okay. I, you know, you know, like those college commercials where they're kind of like the... the whatever, Get your ass off the couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if they actually had just scientists like buying clothing and blowing fucking shit up? <laughs> like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Go to Summit College. Yeah, I honestly, I would sign them immediately. Oh, yeah. I want to be a scientist who just blows shit up. <sighs> Gwei's trial began on February 24th, 1950. Everyone was talking about it. And the legend was built even further when the son of one of the Kennecott execs was arrested for robbing a bank in order to get enough money to travel to Canada and kill Gwei. I mean, come on. He's got to get his uh, uh, revenge. Yeah. yeah, his vengeance. There yeah. you go. The trial lasted two and a half weeks, and the weather was not hospitable, with temps reaching minus 25. But still, crowds came and lined up every morning hours in advance, hoping to get a seat. <laughs> Can you just imagine them trying to get in there like, cold one out there today, ain't it? Cold one out there today, ain't it, Marty? Just all of them. Yeah, yeah just like a, a telephone line of them just cold out there today, ain't it? And then people it? standing in local businesses going, God dang, cold out there today, ain't it? As they're watching the line. It's colder than the muses over. <laughs> muses ovaries. They're very, they're very cold. They are cold. Gwei was tried by an all-male jury, because women weren't allowed, of course, mm. and he didn't seem bothered with the proceedings. He even fell asleep a couple times. To be fair, that was during hours of very technical airplane talk. 
Gwei didn't take the stand in his own defense, and the only display of emotion he showed was when Marie Ange took the stand and announced that she no longer loved him. That really stung. They said his face looked like it turned white and his lips looked blue. Like he was starting to decay on the stand. Well, I mean, technically, that's probably what would happen to your lips if you were, in fact, stung. Yes, Um, yes. Here's the other thing. I don't know why you said sitting through hours of very technical airplane talk. I just envisioned, like, a guy who looks like Milton from fucking Office Space. Like, talking about every little aspect of a plane and even the... Judge is like, geez, I wish I was on that plane when no it blew shit. off. No Get shit. This fucking guy out of here. Oh. Gway was convicted on March 14th. The jury took a brief 17 minutes to reach their verdict. The judge, sentencing him to hang by the neck until dead, burst into tears and cried, Your crime is infamous. It has no name. He's right. Yeah, it really doesn't. Didn't. It doesn't. Gwei decided not to appeal for reasons he never disclosed. Most who knew him believe it was because if he couldn't have Marie Ange, he didn't want to carry on at all. Most of the damning evidence came from Mrs. Peter and Jenna Roo, and when it was time for their trials, Gwei certainly paid them back. As he was being moved to the Montreal jail at Bordeaux, where executions were carried out, He orated a long statement implicating the brother and sister fully in the bombing, saying they knew the entire time what his plans were and why he was doing it. A few days later, on death row, he repeated it to a reporter. Shortly afterward, Jenneru was arrested and charged with murder as the willful manufacturer of the time bomb. On January 3rd, 1951, he was declared guilty and nine days after that was when Gwei was hanged. Oh, shit. Mrs. Peter was formally charged with murder during her brother's trial. Two months after convicting Jenneru, she was convicted as well. Both Jenneru and Mrs. Peter would appeal their convictions to the highest courts possible, but they were denied, denied, denied. Mm. Jenneru was hanged July 25th, 1952, and Mrs. Peter on January 3rd, 1953. Jesus, they just killed them all. All three of them. Holy All hell. three conspirators dead. Wow. Okay, I guess Canada wasn't fucking around. <sighs> you know what? I've had this thought in my head since you got to the point where the uh, the girl's on the stand telling she doesn't love him anymore. Mm-hmm. What if she was like, she's in the middle of this tragic airplane bombing murder, and she's just like, you know what, Gwei, Um, You see, I met this other guy, and he's like, he's starting a band, and he's like really going places. Like it's like just the, like when you get dumped by like a girl who thinks they have a new man who's he's in a band and he's going places. Oh. Like, you know, there's Jordan, and he's like, he's in this, he's a bassist, and like he just says that his band is like getting really big, and I think. I think it's getting real serious with us. They might get a record deal. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I don't think this is working out. He's like, ma'am, can you just move on with the question here? Yeah, (laughs) please. Well, what did you think of J. Albert Gway? Wow, I don't know where in God's name you found it, but I love it. That is a great story. Wow. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. You know who did hear of it was Kelly. Apparently Mm. she she takes a train right past the place where Mrs. Peter was hanged. Really? Yeah. And when she's going into Quebec. They're not, their bodies aren't still there, are they? Yeah, I think they're still hanging <laughs> up. Yeah, like Jack Skellington's. Yeah. yeah. 
They say you put a, a you throw a quarter in the well blower and you can make a wish. Airplane bombers, um, ye be warned. <laughs> That'd be amazing <laughs> if it said that out there. With like a French twang in there. <laughs> you come to Quebec and you think about bombing a plane. You've been warned, bro. You be warned. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed it, you should uh, let me know at uh, bumblebuttpodcast.com. Fill out the form request and it'll come, form submission. It'll come to us exactly like an email. We'll answer. We'll talk to you, whatever you want. If you like to follow us on social media, it would be at bumblebuttpodcast for Instagram at BumblebuttPod for Twitter. Please bop that follow button on Spotify and leave us a review on iTunes if Hell you wouldn't yeah. be so, if you could be so kind to do Hell so. Hell yeah. Unfortunately, nobody loved us this week, but uh, I know they're coming. Yeah, they're coming. Uh, they're coming. It's always like we don't get them and then the next week we get like two. Mm. So that's good. Uh, another thing that we would like you to do is sign up for our Patreon if you want to and if you can. Go to patreon.com slash bumblebuttpodcast. Sign up on any level. Cody, I heard we have uh, some new Patreons. Is that true? We do. We need to, we need to thank Charles for increasing his Charles, uh, donation amount. We need to thank Sarah. Sarah, you monster. And we need to thank Shanty. 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 So thank you so you much. Monster. You guys are awesome. I'm, yep. uh, I'm going to get everything sent out this week for you guys so you can oh, enjoy your good. goodies. Oh, it's yeah. It's going to be good. You're going to love them. Thank you. So, I mean, honestly, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be having all this cool new equipment, sounding professional, have a nice, have com- table. nice, comfortable desk. It feels more comfortable. The podcasting goes better. Everything we have mm. here is bought from their money. Right. Mic stands. Right. right. Everything. Pop filters, microphones, tables. Thought, who would have thought when uh, that day Adam's like, here, buy this $100 of shit off of Amazon. Yeah. We're now sitting where we are. That's pretty good, yeah. It's pretty good. It's better than paying for it, that's Absolutely. For sure. uh, all right, that's so good. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with a Between the Bumbles, and we'll be back next Sunday with another new episode, you know what I mean? Hell yeah. That's good. All right, Cody, thanks for being here. That's been Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. That's been Adam. Thank you, Adam. And thank you all for listening again, and please have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. Unless it's Tuesday. <laughs>